Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, dude? Yeah, not too bad, man, you? Yeah, I'm all right at the moment, man. I say that, actually. I'm falling apart, really. You're falling apart? How yeah. so? It seems like no one ever tells you that when you get to like 30 and above, it's like the warranties run out. Oh, it's terrible. It's yeah. terrible. I, I, I get home from work a lot of days sort of envisioning the kind of, oh, so when I get in, I'm going to chill out by doing this and that. And I'm always too tired to do it. Whereas <laughs> 10 years ago, I would have been like up like, you know, spry, spry I think is the term they yeah. use for elderly people. All up and about and spry and watching films at about three in the morning. Gets to about half 12 now and I'm so, I'm so fucking tired. Why am I so tired? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> to the Grumpy Old Men podcast. <laughs> Normal service will be resumed shortly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and no, I had like a busted leg and then I tweaked my neck the other day. And I'm like, I swear, I mean, I'm 33, right? Mm. I swear that five years ago, I was literally indestructible. So yeah. You could have thrown me out of an airplane. I would have been absolutely fine. Now I just need to get out of bed funny and my neck goes. It's, yeah, I didn't treat myself too well, to be quite honest. I put a, nah, lot, me neither. put a lot of things in my body I shouldn't have. Maybe that's it. They do warn you, don't they? Yeah, I think I think is it. I think it's. Uh, oh, who is it? It's the guy from the last picture. So he says, like, you know what the most ridiculous thing in life is? Is getting old and decrepit. Yeah. So that's it's not not that it's the worst thing, the saddest thing. It's the most ridiculous thing. The thing they warn you about though. They go, oh yeah, it's no fun getting old. Don't get old, lads. And you go, yeah, okay. But you expect that to start around about forty, not thirty. Yeah. <laughs> no one warned me about fucking thirty. Not even forty, man. I'm thinking sixty min. Yeah, you think, wouldn't you? Fuck's nah. sake. Anyway, we, we've scared off all the younger <laughs> listeners now, haven't we? Yeah, just, so we, just, a bunch of old fogies going. I know what you yeah, mean. Yeah, we're just you know being very ornery and well beyond our years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's kick off things with some film news. First thing up this week, uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago the trailer to the new Mortal Kombat film. Uh huh. Yeah, and I we, I don't think there actually was a release date at the time, but there is now. Anyway, it was supposed to be released on January the 15th of this year, but it was postponed and it's now coming out this month, uh, April 23rd. It's going to be the release for the new Mortal Kombat film. Oh, wow. Okay. And I have to say, actually, watching the trailer gave me that, you know when you get that sort of tingle of nostalgia? Yeah. It actually did that for me. It actually gave me a little bit of a shiver, especially when the, I love whoever edited that trailer and left the iconic Mortal Kombat theme to the end. I thought it did an amazing job, but it actually does look like I think what everybody wants from a Mortal Kombat film, which is to be a load of really well choreographed fight sequences that look like the game, a shoestring plot, and at the end there's a big lightning-filled explosion and a big boss battle and everyone goes home. Well, ever since you first mentioned it to me, I have kind of had it on the back burner as I do hope this turns out to be one of those, you know, obviously many years from now when everything's back to normal Hopefully not many, but you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. It's, that's going to be one of those movies where you invite people around on a Friday night with beers and get pizza in and be like, do you want to watch Mortal Kombat? Yeah, you know, I mean... I'm hoping it pays off that way, you know? I got a really good feeling from the trailer. Yeah. But, I mean, you never know. Obviously, it could just be whoever cut the trailer together did a really good job of it. But uh, I'm ever so slightly hyped for that one. I, I've got a feeling that it's... I think it's going to be trash, but then a, a Mortal Kombat film, in my mind, should be trash. Yeah, just yeah. good trash. You know? Well, fing fingers crossed, it is good trash. It just reminds me, I don't think we've ever done a, tr a premium where we've listed uh, trailers that are better than the film. No, that's a good shout, actually. Yeah, maybe next week. Because there's some gener there's generous stuff out there when you, when you but you you do could have be a new, to could be a new segment. Actually, we could do one a week. Yeah, because you know, I've, that are better than I've the seen film, yeah. so many trailers that were fucking awesome, and the product for which it was the product which it was selling essentially was just 
not. It's an interesting conceit that as well, because so many films nowadays, I think the trailers are cut terribly, where it shows you like stuff from the third act of the film. Yeah. And you end up watching and thinking, well, actually, I don't need to watch that now because I know every beat of the plot that was important. Yeah, exactly. The other day I watched, um, because I love Strange Days, the Catherine Bigelow film. I think it's one of her best films, actually. It ended up being one of her most maligned or misunderstood. And in 1995, they uh, the teaser trailer for it has become something of, you know, fan lore because the teaser trailer for that film is absolutely fantastic. What happened to teaser trailers? Yeah. Teasers, were, there's some great teaser trailers that really, really hooked their teeth into the movie going public, but you don't see them anymore. If Alien came out today, the Xenomorph would be in the trailer. Yeah, I guarantee was, you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just a horrible, horrible thing, but... And there'd be far more superfluous action... It's got to be like studio like oversight as well. This is marketing people. I always blame marketing people for this. Fuck them. But, you know, like, oh, you know, you had to put this in because that'll make sure this target demographic comes to see the film. You had to put this bit in because I don't think it's like an editor's decision. I always think you should let the director edit the trailer because they know what are the best bits they can show that gives you the, the summation of the experience without giving away any of the plot. But it always gets handed off to a team that then decides through the marketing department how many different facets of society they want to hit with that trailer. And as a result, you end up getting most of the film, which just, I mean, half the time I don't even watch trailers anymore. If I click on a trailer and I see that it's four minutes long, I don't watch it. Like two yeah. minutes is fine. What, four minutes, no way. That's too the, much of the um, film. What's the term, oh, for fuck's sake, just when I think of something, I can't think of the specific term. There's a term, is it like, does it tick the the, like the quadrant? I think they refer to it as like a, do they call it a quadrant movie where it appeals to like four key demographics? Right, sure, yeah, yeah. And I think it's like kids. Well, actually, no, I think it can alternate really, but it's just, yeah, there's a sort of a, a seller, a, a USP of a film and something that is alleged to be a good predictor of its box office success is if it, it is like a quadrant film in terms of appeal mm. and stuff like that fucking does my head in. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, get yeah. back to do, get back to doing everything as it was before in the good old days. Cause it was better. Everyone knows it was better. In the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> back when we had typhoid. Yes. Oh, that was the yeah. fun shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second bit of news this week. I know you've been writing quite a lot of stuff. Well, writing some and uh, trashing others, but I know you've been using your Shudder account quite frequently. Yes. Uh, there's a new film about to be released on Shudder and it's called uh, The Banishing. The Banishing? Yeah, coming out next month. Uh, trailer arrived yesterday. I haven't watched the trailer yet. I will forward it over to you. Uh, this film is being billed as the true story of the most haunted house in England. Uh, the synopsis reads, A young reverend and his wife and daughter move into a manor with a horrifying secret. When a vengeful spirit haunts the little girl and threatens to tear the family apart, the reverend and his wife are forced to confront their beliefs. They must turn to black magic by seeking the help of a famous occultist or risk losing their daughter. So it's set in Borley Rectory then, I guess. I believe so. Yes, it's interesting you knew the most haunted house in England. Yeah. Well, because if it's not set in Borley Rectory, then they're lying. That, well, that, is, that is deemed to be the most haunted place. That's in actually not in this article. I'm getting this from uh, Bloody Disgusting. But I, I I did do a bit more reading into it earlier, and I do remember that being mentioned. Yeah, so I think you're right on that one. Well, that's cool. Mm. I think they've got a ghost of a monk there, among other people. So I was going to start uh, Jessica Brown Finley, uh, John Heffernan, John Lynch, Sean Harris, um, and others. Oh, like, I'm sure I like Sean Harris. He was in um, Possum. Yeah, yeah, freaky yeah. Sh- he's been in some freaky shit, man. It's good. 
Uh, it's directed by Christopher Smith, who did uh, the horror films Creep 2004, Severance, and Triangle. Um, Creep wasn't all that. Severance was a bit of a laugh. And I mean, what, the one about the Bermuda Triangle, that was actually, that wasn't half bad at all, actually. Yeah, he's got a bit of a reputation. Yeah. So I, I saw that and thought that may well be up your street. Sounds like it could be very cool. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And as I, I mean, I, I, I watch um, just about any, I mean, it's a horror film with Sean Harris. That usually uh, brightens my anticipation because he's very, very good at being incredibly sinister and scary. I have noticed so. on the Cinementalist Twitter account we're being followed by more and more horror fans. I think probably because you review so many of them. So, uh, hi, guys. <laughs> and uh, I guess well, we'll get round to uh, I, vanishing. I, I like my horror. I like, that's the thing. You get a lot of people who consider themselves to be highbrow cineasts and they're very, very snooty about horror. I love horror, but I love... Horror, horror, not the Final Destination series. Right. Now, people are like, oh, we're just being a gatekeeping prick. It's like, no, 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 I just don't like those. I like, you know, you know, I've banged yeah, on about Good it. horror. Yeah, good yes. horror. <laughs> uh, in international film news, I thought this was right up uh, both our streets, actually. There's about to be a film released on Netflix. In fact, it's going to be released tomorrow called Night in Paradise in English. This is a Korean film uh, written and directed by Park Hun Jung who did uh, the film that we've rated so many times on this podcast, you might as well be called the This Film Podcast. He did uh, I Saw the Devil. Well, the I Saw the Devil podcast, that's pretty cool. I mean, it limits what we would talk about. But Yeah, I think, <laughs> we, I think we've already got as much mileage out of that film as we possibly could because we've rated it a million times. But anyway, we love our Korean cinema. Um, love his work so far. This is, yeah, as I said, it's going to be released on Netflix tomorrow. It was due for a cinematic release, and obviously that's now moved over to streaming services. Uh, plot synopsis on this is very bare at the moment. All we've got is, um, after his sister and nephew are murdered because he tried to leave his gang, Tai Gu feeds, flees to Jeju Island where he meets Jai Young, a terminally ill woman. Now, as I understand it from doing a bit of research on this, this is a, uh, like a gang hitman who attempts to run away and is followed by his past. And the trailer for it, it features a lot of big explosions and Korean uh, hyper-neon slick violence that looks very, very cool. Mm. So I'd be very interested to see this. So, if, well, for us, this is tomorrow, April the 9th. We're recording on the 8th. But for you guys listening, uh, this is out already. So I imagine, actually, some of the people listening to this will have seen this film by yeah. now. But uh, he's got a great track record, the director. I like written and directed by as well. And it looks very slick in that... Um, now, very noticeably Korean kind of way. Korean cinema's got a certain visual style to it that I adore. Absolutely. So quite yeah. excited for that as well. That sounds pretty cool. I've uh, I mean, I rarely throw anything in there, but I'm not entirely sure when it's coming out, but one film that's been slated for release at some point this year is a Netflix jobby with jo uh, John David Washington, and it's called uh, Beckett. Oh, and, yeah, um, I did see a bit about that. Yeah, it's like a couple are in, they're holidaying in uh, Epirus in Greece and they become embroiled in what is only described as a violent conspiracy. Wow. And it's okay. got John David Washington, uh, Alicia Vikander's in it, and it's being produced by uh, Luca Guadagnino. So I'm hoping that, I mean, that the original title was Born to be Murdered. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, Beckett just sounds like it rolls off the tongue a bit better. Born to be Murdered sounds like a bit. So it sounds very CD list movie. You know? Yeah, yeah, sounds ridiculous. So no, I just I I first read about that a few months ago, and I've been anticipating its release because I do I like Washington and uh, yeah, great, I, and I thought that the um I mean the synopsis is incredibly vague, but just uh, on the surface it sounds quite intriguing. But yeah, that one sounds all right. <laughs> I was just looking at my next news article here and I'm laughing already. I, 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 had, I had to put this in because we've covered two films that we're really excited about now. So let's uh, 
let's do one that obviously I'm going to review. Um, Cobra Kai co-showrunner Josh Held will direct Ancient Aliens, a big screen adaptation of the popular History Channel series for Legendary. The movie is inspired by the long-running program that is led by the big-haired, larger-than-life, and thoroughly memed Giorgio A. Sulacos. <laughs> Remember him? The Mount Aliens Dead. meme? Yep, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, I actually reviewed Ancient Aliens not too long ago because it suddenly showed up on Netflix. I'd seen many, many episodes later night on the History Channel. I thought, okay, I'll try and sit down with more of it. And it is the most conjecture-filled crap imaginable, but a lot of fun. So God knows where they're going to go. I'm doing a bit more reading into this article. It does seem like they're going to approach it from a like a straight perspective, as in doing like the whole ancient civilizations visited by aliens thing. Well, ancient astronauts, basically. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I have nothing more to say, really. Um, Do you reckon the guy, well, God, what's the guy's name? The German guy who wrote Chariot of the Gods. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if he's going to factor into the uh, big screen adaptation at all. I mean... It's going to be a character, maybe. I could only see this done as like a completely tongue-in-cheek comedy. I don't think you're going to be able to sell that with the association with Ancient Aliens. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure if the History Channel knows why people watch Ancient Aliens. I don't think anybody watches it because they're interested. I think people watch it because it's funny. Yeah. Because the leaps in logic. At least I hope so. I really, really hope so. So you, you're saying that they, they're aiming to play this straight? By the look of the article. What do yeah. they think it's going to be like the new arrival or something? You know? yeah. <laughs> they think they're going to be on the same par as fucking Denis Villeneuve and all that. It's worth pointing out as well, this will be Held's feature film directorial debut. So, uh, yeah, I've, I'm really looking forward to it, wow. to be fair, but I, I don't have high hopes, but it could be a could be a so bad it's good. You know, you never know. See, I mean, we can flip a coin, but I think in your heart of hearts, you would want to review that over me. Yeah, I have to watch it. <laughs> I, I have to watch it. It's true, it's true. It's I mean, fair, it's fair. We're, we're really obliged to watch everything, but it's okay if you want to take it. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely fine. New Anthony Hopkins movie in the works. Uh, this is an indie movie entitled Where Are You? Got a little bit of a plot summary here. This is also going to feature Hopkins' Westworld co-star, Angela Sarafin, as well as actors Camille Rowe, Madeline Brewer, Mickey Summer, and Rain Nicholson. Uh, the story is about a photographer who experiences an artistic decline and starts taking his aggressions out on his artistic girlfriend. When she cryptically disappears, he enters his subconscious, descending down a spiral of mystery and madness on his search for her as well as himself. Ooh. Okay. Now, one film we haven't reviewed, I think just we haven't gotten around to it yet, and there's The Father. I've been hearing nothing but acclaim for The Father all across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently, apparently it's great. I love that Anthony Hopkins in his later years seems to be taking on more and more small and interesting projects. I think that's a real sort of, if you are an esteemed actor and you're getting into your later years, I think that's the, the way to go forward. You know, he's got a good eye for a script, does Hopkins. Oh, I love Hopkins, but it is funny when you uh, encounter some people who are, who, who you know, they're, they're quite, uh, you might call them uh, pedestrious, homely film fans, but film fans nonetheless, they're like, oh, I just, Anthony Hopkins, you know, I just associate him with remains of the day. He's such a, so vulnerable. I can't picture him as anything else. And I think, like, really, what? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's sure. Like, he's, he's, he's quite diverse in what he's able to do. <laughs> I loved him in, uh, what was it, The World's Fastest Indian or whatever World's Fastest Indian, yeah. yeah and, I, I um, thought he was amazing in that. Even though I don't really like a lot of King, there have been some awesome King adaptations. I don't like a lot of them. And the Hearts in Atlantis film was okay, but him as um, 
oh, is it Ted Browsigan? I think the character is. He is really great in that mm. as this sort of uh, fairly dangerous but good uh, psychic mysterious stranger. You know, he's, he's he can really... He's very, he's very getting eclectic. better with age. I yeah, think, yeah. Which is amazing because he was fantastic to start with. But uh, yeah, look out for that one. I've got a feeling that might be good. And last bit of news this week, Borat 2 and Hate You Give actresses starring in what is being referred to as a secret slasher movie. Can you help me with the genre on this? What is a secret slasher? Apparently it's a genre type. Secret slasher? Yeah. Well, surely the overwhelming majority of slashers are... Well, it's well, secret as in the antagonist's identity is secret. I have no idea. That's just the genre type it's given. It's not a slasher movie. It's a secret slasher. What the fuck is that? Yeah, no, no idea. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the reason I picked up... This Friday the 13th? Yeah. You don't find out who's doing the killing until... I, I mean, can only assume that's what it means. What does that even yeah. fucking mean? Yeah, yeah. Is it like where... So all the other Friday the 13th is not a secret slasher because you know it's Jason Voorhees. Is it, is it the Maybe? implication that the antagonist's identity is a secret? Maybe. Uh, no, so are we no really idea. making those distinctions now? The only reason I really picked this article up, this is from Screen Rant, is because it's going to star uh, Maria Bakalova, who was in Borat 2. And I thought she was absolutely fucking amazing. But a lot of people Borat say 2. they thought she was better in the film than Baron Cohen. Was. Yeah, if anything, she didn't just keep up with Baron Cohen. She exceeded it at a point. Yeah which was just so massively impressive. And I made a mental note to check out every single thing she does from this point onwards, because I think she's massively accomplished. Uh, this film is going to be called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. So it's comedy horror, yeah? Uh, well, no, it's a secret slasher. That's all that we know about it at the moment. I hope with a title like Bodies, 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 it's not going to be taking itself seriously. Uh, who knows? <laughs> anyway, this is in the works at uh, A24, and the details of the thriller are being kept under wraps, so perhaps... But this still doesn't make sense. So, yeah, okay, so Secret Slasher and that we don't know anything about it. Then the article says, the project, which is being called, in quotes, a Secret Slasher, is in development at A24. Not a clue. Someone please write in and tell us what where we're going wrong on genre there because that's oh, a new God. one on me. Do you know what a cool slasher is? 1981, The Prowler. Check out that. That's a good slasher. Oh, there you go. A recommendation from the get-go. If, you, if you've not seen it yeah, and, you, and you enjoy slashers or you can enjoy slasher, Check that out. It's very, very highly acclaimed among proper horror hounds, but it's not one that people go, oh, yes, but yeah, stick that on. Oh, yeah, I might give that a watch. That's a good one. Cool. That's a good one. Okay, well, that was a recommendation out of nowhere. Awesome. Let's hope. It's not out of nowhere. It's in the context of well, what no, you're no, talking it's just, about. Yeah, it's a recommendation in the news, I think, is really cool. <laughs> but hopefully, <clears throat> here's my link. Are you ready for it? Here Absolutely. it comes. Absolutely. Hopefully, we've got some more recommendations coming for you right now. Because as usual, <laughs> Liam has two movie reviews for us. Liam, what do you have this week? I certainly do. Okay, well, let's just uh, get this one out of the way. I watched... Um, I can already know, tell this is not a recommendation. Well, you know, um, within the past year, and I, this was also when people are going to be listening to it, this would have been last week's uh, blog admission. I've been pretty damn impressed by young Tom Holland. You have, you really rated him. I think in The Devil All the Time, his performance was absolutely brilliant. In Cherry, you know, the the film got knocked quite a bit, but I was really, really taken with him as the eponymous character. And I think the guy's got some serious chops in it. He's a really good up-and-coming kid. I'm not familiar with him as Spider-Man, but there you go. I mean, I haven't seen everything. They're not bad, actually. You've seen everything. Uh, Have you seen everything? (laughs) No, I have seen... I've seen Spider-Man Homecoming, et cetera, though. And I have to say, as superhero films go, and we knock them quite a lot on this podcast, they weren't bad at all. Well, he, he was very good in them. 
I'll, pro- I'll possibly get round to it. Mm-hmm. But Tom Holland's good. So Chaos Walking, I see it doing the rounds. I think, oh, Tom Holland. Oh, Daisy Ridley. Okay, she was pretty cool as Ray in the Star Wars yeah, great trilogy. Actress. Mads Mikkelsen as well. Can't get higher than that. So essentially, let's do the general synopsis. It's the year 2257 AD, and we're on a planet named New World. Now, New World is a planet somewhere far, far away in bloody blah solar system that was colonized by Earthlings a few years prior. The indigenous alien, well, they wouldn't be aliens in this context, but the indigenous species on this planet are known as the Spackle. And uh, essentially, the colonists, the colonists engaged in a war with the Spackle, which uh, killed off all of the female population, Earth's female population, and uh, a good chunk of the male population. Uh, so the, you only have uh, men and the boys who were born at the time existing in this settlement named uh, Prentice Town. And uh, it's named for Mayor David Prentice, played by Mickelson, who rules over it quite sinisterly and with an iron fist in a very strange fur coat and cowboy hat get up, going around on a horse all the time for some reason that I'll get to in a bit. He's an alien wrangling cowboy. Yeah, kind of. Okay. And um, so not only are they just men and boys, but they've been lumbered with this condition that is purported to be uh, the result of a virus or a germ unleashed by the spackle. And the condition is known as the noise. And the noise means that every single male member of this settlement is overwhelmed with a cacophony of every other person's thoughts at all times. They can hear and even see the thoughts of each other and also that of any animals in the surroundings. And it's something that is completely engulfing everybody's at all times. Some people have the ability to suppress it. Like you can control your noise so that people can't be privy to whether you're thinking fucked up things about them or whether you're planning, yada, yada, yada. It's, but it, it nevertheless leads to a lot of contention. And the main character, Todd, as played by Tom Holland, is a youngster being raised by um, two blokes in Prentice Town. It's never, I think they're just two guys raising him. It's never established if they're in a, a same sex relationship. The film doesn't really clarify that. So I'm not going to presume. Sure. But uh, he's been raised uh, by two fathers and he's got his pet dog, Manchi. And he seems to just be a typical sort of angsty, confused adolescent. He's having trouble controlling his own noise and it's getting him into scuffles with various people. One day, Todd is working on the farmstead that he lives at with uh, his two fathers, and he notices someone rummaging around in a cabin on the property. And he gives chase to the figure, and he comes across the ruins of a spacecraft. And so he's a bit, okay, what the fuck is this? So then he goes into sort of like the centre, the town centre of the settlement, and Mayor Prentice and uh, the other guys there, they catch wind of Todd's thoughts that he's trying to keep very cagey about, and they deduce that he's hiding something, that he's found something strange, i.e. the ruined spacecraft. So Mayor Prentice insists on a searching party to go into the surrounding woodlands, and this is where Todd, on his own, when he breaks off, bumps into Viola, played by Daisy Ridley, who was a passenger on this spacecraft that crashed. And Todd is in, oh my Jesus fucking Christ, it's a girl. I've, and he's like, I've never seen one of these. It's a girl. 
and he's staring at her dumbfounded while all of his thoughts are like, oh, her hair's pretty and all of his weird, creepy, horny teen boy musings. And so Mayor Prentice orders Viola escorted back to his chambers so she can be interrogated. She manages to escape. Todd hides her briefly while his dad's explained to him that in order for her to be really safe, he has to take her to this secret settlement called Far Branch where there are not only men but women and children living there as well and that he has to escort her there and he probably won't be able to come back. And he takes Viola and they go into the woods and set off on this journey while Mayor Prentice and the other men are in hot pursuit. It should also be mentioned that Mayor Prentice's son, David Jr., is played by Nick Jonas for some reason. Okay. So that's, you following me on the set? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Now, you know how I've said a few times about a few things that one of the greatest sins a film can commit is when it offers a very intriguing novel and original premise and it essentially does fuck all with it. Yep, absolutely. This is one of them. <laughs> okay. They say, going into it thinking, oh, the noise. Oh, people can hear each other's thoughts and they can see each other's thoughts materialized. Yeah, it's great all times. Yeah. Really, really, really intriguing. This is the source novel of this. It's, it's, it's got a bit of a strange and cumbersome title, but it's part of a series. But the novel this is based on is called The Knife of Never Letting Go by Patrick Ness. And the trilogy it forms is known as the Chaos Walking Trilogy. So Doug Lehman has adapted the first book and named it for the, 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 the name of the literary trilogy. Um, I cannot speak t- um, as to how substantive the books get with the the noise as a concept, but the books seem to be quite acclaimed. So I'm just hazarding a guess that they do a hell of a, a, a way better job than this film does because it it's presented in a really irritating way. First and foremost, it's always there's no nuance. It's but it's always going off at all times. This constant buzzing and barrage of noises and quite poorly done SFX to present the sort of a wispy, smoky, weird ethereum that surrounds guys' heads when their noise is going off and sort of hokey imagery when uh, to represent what they're thinking about. I understand that the characters are supposed to be overwhelmed with this sensation at all times, but there's a better way to communicate it to the audience without being distracting and gimmicky and really irritating. So that's the first problem with it. And yes, ultimately, they don't do anything with it. You think about the potential havoc, stuff like that could cause. You People know what you're thinking at all times, and you're, they're going to be knowing all the really bad shit you maybe think about. People are going to know if such and such person is plotting to murder somebody, if they're plotting to do even worse than that, or if they they feel guilt because of some completely abominable thing they've done. It, it doesn't even go into that whatsoever. It's a completely superfluous addition. It's a Western set on another planet, and the only thing that distinguishes it from being a bog-standard boilerplate Western is the fact that you see aliens in it, and they have this silly mass telepathy bullshit going on. Other than that, it's just a Western setup. Mads Mikkelsen is dressed as the Baron of a town, as a cowboy, and got some locals there in the settlement that are suspicious of young Tom Holland and especially the girl who's dressed there. So he has to escort the girl through a rural expanse to get her somewhere new. It's just, it's basically, they just, they've stolen a Western setup and they've just added this crap all on top of it that they do nothing with. 
And the cinematography is just very, it's baseline. It's nothing to really shout about. Tom Holland is a good actor. He's just given a flat note. He's, he's given seems to be given no choice but uh, to work with a flat note, redundant performance here. Same with Daisy Ridley. Same with Mad- Mads Mikkelsen kind of does his sinister best, but it's nothing, it's no good. They're just wasting the guy. And right up as say they're wasting the great Dane's brilliance. Mm. So it's re- it re- really was just an enormous disappointment. And oh. I, was so, I was so bored and I could not fucking wait for it to end. Seriously. Oh, well, fair enough. Just yeah. uh, honestly, I know it sounds really cool, but please don't waste your time because it's just... It, Shame, it's, yeah, because the setup sounds promising and you couldn't get a higher calibre of actors than that. Oh, it does. Uh, and I think, um, so I can't remember who, who said it, but somebody said perfectly that, it, you know, it badly, it bungles its premise. It does, and it insufferably bungles its premise because I think anyone could be, I think it would be sort of axiomatic and natural for people to read that synopsis and think, oh man, what do they do with that? Yeah, sounds that's, good. That's, you yeah. know, that's really novel. That's really, really, that's a very, very intelligent um, and outside of the box concept. What do they do with that? The answer is fuck all. <laughs> okay, so don't bother with Chaos Walking. No, I don't think I will. But then after Chaos Walking... I caught up with a film that was released um, on Amazon Prime in January of this year, and I've only just got around to it now, and I wish I got around to it sooner because I finally stuck on One Night in Miami. Now, this is the directorial debut of Regina King, great actress. A lot of people know her from, I mean, she was in stuff like Enemy of the State and Boys in the Hood. She's been in tons of stuff, really, really, like, incredibly talented woman. And this is based on a play by Kemp Powers, and it's a fictionalized account of a real meeting on the night of February 25th, 1964. Now, on the 25th of February, 1964, Muhammad Ali, when he was still known as Cassius Clay, beat Sonny Liston. He became the heavyweight champion of the world at only 22 years of age. And so, as a celebration, he spent the evening, I think it was purported to be a party, but it ultimately just ended up being four guys at the Hampton House Motel in Miami, which at the time was segregated. It was only black guests could stay there. And so I think it was room 38 where um, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, spent the night with Sam Cooke, who is known, still known to this day as the King of Soul, one of the most pioneering soul musicians in music history, Jim Brown, who is widely considered to be uh, the best black American football player in NFL history and also went on to do a load of great stuff in uh, a lot black exploitation action flicks, and uh, Malcolm X. So you've got Cassius Clay, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X all spending the evening together in this little room at the Hampton House Motel. Now, this is something that actually happened but nobody is actually aware of the genuine events of that night because they never really talked about what, what they discussed, if they just were in there having a good time, if they discussed very substantive and cerebral things at length. But the play that this film is based upon, it offers an, a deeply intriguing hypothetical as to what could have taken place in that room that night that translates brilliantly to the film it's there's all of these. I mean, the performances are absolutely electric. You got um, Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali, who really is uh, the way that he emulates Ali's 
Kentucky accent he's, and his very distinctive speech patterns and everything. And he's built like the guy as well. And he seems to sort of convey his sort of braggadocio as well as he can. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke, absolutely phenomenal. Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown. I, I remember reviewing the Invisible Man film, which I think was an absolute pile of shit. And Aldous Hodge, the performance he gave in that was nothing to write home about. It, it, which is part and parcel with the film because the film was absolute dog turd. He is absolutely fantastic in this as Jim Brown, but I think the the performance that really was utterly electric and really sort of leapt through the screen at me was uh, Kingsley Benadire as Malcolm X, without with no intent of taking anything away from anyone else because th- this film is relies on the strength of all four principles, but just. Uh, I was just so blown away by Ben Adir's interpretation of Malcolm X because I think up to this point, the most famous incarnation of him on the big screen has been Denzel in the Spike Lee biopic. And as much as I was trying to put that out of mind, I thought, I'm so used to Denzel's interpretation of him and also watching interviews with Malcolm X on television. It's going to be kind of weird watching somebody else fill the cinematic boots. But no, they, I mean, a completely different, more intimate interpretation, but an absolutely tremendous one nonetheless. And the the night gets very fiery at certain points. They talk about their responsibilities as black icons and figures in the public eye and what responsibilities they have to each other, what responsibilities they have to the black community, how in, Malcolm X... Without spoiling too much, Malcolm X uh, saying to Sam Cooke, you know, yes, you've got a wonderful voice. Yes, your records are selling. But you're you're singing things about la-di-da-di-do, I love you. Bob Dylan is out there writing politically conscious songs. You need to, you know, we're all weapons in this. We need to be helping each other and we need to be helping our people. That's really interesting. Because we are, you know, we are the people who can drive this fight forward so that we're actually treated like human beings and first-class citizens in America instead of animals. Uh, oh, man, the, the dialogue is, is absolutely on fire. It's really, it's really moving. Uh, it's really fiery cerebral. You think of the term thought-provoking. This film provokes thought fan-fucking-tastically. And I've heard a few critics... Mark Commode, he received the film positively, but when I listened to review, it was the absolute textbook definition of damning with faint praise. Yeah, he's like, yeah, but you know, you can, you still, you can see the stagey roots, but the performances are good enough that they transcend that. And I was just thinking, well, fuck it, like, no, the performances, in my subjective opinion, the performances are fantastic, and the film does way more than transcend its stagey roots. I didn't think staginess at one point in this film, legitimately hand on heart. I did not. Regina King opens it up outside of the room. You're initially, you're introduced to each character sequentially. You're, in, you're first introduced to Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, when he nearly gets beaten by Henry Cooper the year prior to the Focal Night. You're first introduced to Sam Cooke when he does an act at the Copacabana and is very, is very sort of ill-welcomed by a very indifferent white audience. Uh, you're first introduced to Jim Brown when he goes and sees a friend of his played by Bo Bridges in a, an absolutely appalling scene, which I won't give anything away, but it's something that, that catalyzes things uh, brilliantly. And um, yeah, Malcolm X uh, comes home to his wife and is 
very stressed and voicing deep concerns about his rift at the time with the Nation of Islam and his upset with the Honourable Elijah Muhammad that was going on. So, and then it brings everyone together after Clay wins the fight. And it just the way the film presents this, because for all, for all we know, that real night could have just been four friends. They were friends in real life. They could have been talking about baseball. They, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they got together because all, they were four really close friends and they were all really ecstatic about the fact that Ali uh, crossed Sonny Liston and became a champion at such a young age. It could have been an absolute, just a, a completely elatory feel-good night. But this film chooses to, and the play on which it's based, chooses to hypothesise that night as a turning point in American history with regards to civil rights and intersectionality and the way forwards in, I suppose, you know, in terms of culture war, but in terms of human and civil rights. And it's honestly, man, I was, I was completely fucking floored by this. It's a really, really special piece of work. I have no criticisms of it. Everyone should see it. Well, fantastic. Yeah. And, so, it, and, 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 it, and it looks and sounds fucking good as well. I didn't really say much about the cinematography and score, but it's, it's, a, it's just everything in, the to- in its totality. Everything is sharp. Everything is off on all cylinders. And yeah, it was, it was a, I was impressed. I had a lump in my throat. I, would, I will definitely be watching again and recommending it to all and sundry. Wow, that's an incredibly positive review. I will definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah, do Super. so. Okay then, well, TV of the week. Two things to talk about this week. One of which is a Netflix series and the other is not a docu-series, just a flat-out documentary. It is a docu-something though. It's a docu-something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like to mix it up, you know. And that's all good. It's all good, man. The first thing I want to talk about is, uh, this has been lighting up the Netflix charts recently. And um, it's received very half and half reviews. And so I'm going to give you my take on it. Now, this is called uh, The Irregulars. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, it's a British crime drama series on Netflix at the moment. has been absolutely lighting up the charts. Everybody's been watching it. And it's based on the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So we can immediately see where this is going. But let me give you the setup regardless. Uh, We first meet B, played by Thaddea Graham and her sister, Jessie, played by Darcy Shaw. Uh, they're young girls living in 19th century London. And we open with a obvious dream sequence where Jessie is moving through a haunted, alien-esque kind of scenario. Everything's very murky and misty. It's very obvious that she's in some kind of psychological world. It's very obviously not reality until she's woken by her sister, B, who says, you were dreaming again. Yeah, you were freaking out. These two girls are living uh, just outside a workhouse in London. Uh, they've got two friends, uh, Billy, who's played by Jojo Macari, and Spike, who's played by Mikkel David. And they make their money doing underground boxing fighting. This underground bare knuckle boxing scenario where they go, he fights somebody way bigger than him, hopes to make a bit of money, maybe losing, maybe winning. And they're basically a bunch of young ragamuffins living in 19th century London. Their apartment, I want to call it, although it's essentially a slum, is overlooked by a very high-class, high-end London street, Baker Street to be precise. And they become aware that every time they come out of their front door, they are looked upon by somebody from one of the Baker Street windows. This is, of course, Dr. Watson, played by Royce Pearson, who recruits B. He corners one, her one day in a back alley. She thinks she's being followed and something terrible is about to happen to her. But no, he's Dr. Watson. He's very nice indeed. 
He corners her and says, uh, my, my friend and I, we run a detective agency. You can probably guess who the friend is. Um, but because we are high Jimmy class- Jimmy Savile. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a dark one. <laughs> because they are high class gentlemen, they have trouble gaining information from the slums of London. So what they really need is a group of street kids to go out and do their investigating for them when they are no longer capable of gathering the information they need. And so their first assignment is that they must go and look for the mother of a stolen baby because seven babies have been stolen in London recently and there is obviously a nefarious perpetrator behind. Watson and obviously Holmes are looking for this perpetrator and they are recruiting the street kids to do their dirty work for them. We also have uh, Leo, who's played by Harrison Osterfeld, who is a uh, prince. He's based on a Prince Leopold, who's a haemophiliac and is therefore kept away in the palace, away from all the muck of London. He's a very sheltered kid, and he keeps escaping from his beautifully royal prison to tour the streets of London because he wants a bit of excitement out of life. And uh, he's introduced to the gang by, he's out with, in, with a, one of his butlers in a carriage, and he very nearly runs down Jessie, who is wandering across the street in a daze because she's having one of her psychological supernatural nightmares again. So Jessie's going a bit mad. Leo is the upper-class boy that is now interested in this young group of ragamuffins and wants to help them. And off they go solving supernatural adventures. Nice, easy setup, to be quite honest, mm -hmm. at the behest of Dr. Watson and a mysteriously absent Holmes, at least for the first couple of episodes, because Holmes is characterized in this production as being a dope fiend. And Watson is pretty much his carer at this point, which is not a bit of characterization, but okay. There's, there was a bit of that in the, the Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. There certainly was, yeah. I didn't think that it would be that faithful from the way you were setting up. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. I was a little bit surprised by that as well, but actually it's done uh, a little bit heavy-handedly, actually. Mm. Um, <sighs> this, <laughs> this is difficult because the first thing I want to say about it, look, I don't like getting down on child actors because I think it's unfair, really. None of us were particularly good when we were kids. Do you know what I mean? There's that learning phase moment where you come up and you make your mistakes. And so I don't really want to get heavy on it. What I will say, and this is me being kind, believe me, is that the performances from the uh, child stars are what I would describe as Hollyoaks-esque. Well, it's probably that kind of molly coddling attitude as to why they turned out so bad. <laughs> now I'm going to spare the rod at this point <laughs> because I'm sure they've got some great performances in them. And to be fair to them, although I would describe the Hollyoaks for those that are unaware, I know we've got a lot of international listeners. Hollyoaks is a UK soap that even amongst soap operas is regarded as having terrible performances. I'm sorry, I have to say. Terrible it. everything. Yeah. It's not great. But to be fair to them, I'm not sure what they're supposed to do with this kind of dialogue. Because everybody's written as if they were modern teenagers of today, which creates a really weird dissonance between the 19th century London setting. And the setting looks really good. They're obviously using all those same sets and streets that are used in every other 19th century London production. But having everybody speak like modern day teenagers, is it's not anachronistic in a good way. It just creates a dissonance. Sounds very obnoxious. More than that, the soundtrack is actually modern day sort of laid-back trip-hop mumble rap, which, again, with that setting, just creates this clash of themes that I found really jarring and really pulled me out of the room. Really, well, the problem with this is, is it smacks of older people trying desperately to be down with the kids. And the absolute worst thing you can do as an adult is when you're trying to make, I mean, it's trying to be a teen drama, 
but it, it's a load of adults pretending they're kids in the writer's room. And that comes across really, really strongly. And as a result, the dialogue is rubbish. You've got that weird dissonance with the fact that it's a, a sort of modern characters and modern soundtrack in a 19th century London setting. Uh, these supernatural elements. So the whole point of this is they're supposed to be off solving these supernatural mysteries for Dr. Watson and Holmes. Is almost like an afterthought is they're trying very desperately to tell relatable teen stories through these teen characters. And then the supernatural stuff is just an excuse for them to get to these phases in their lives where they have a discussion. And I didn't find that to be any good at all. It also does that horrible thing that Guy Ritchie's King Arthur does, where they'll have moments where one of the characters will relate a story to the other teens, except it'll do flashbacks where, so I said to him, what did you say to me? And he goes, well, I said to you. And, and so it does a flashback thing where the person, the narration keeps going, but the actor is doing the flashback scene and uh, mouthing the narration. You remember that in King Arthur? You know what yeah, I mean by that? Yeah. And it didn't work then and it doesn't work in this either. Uh, Rory McCann is in the first episode. What, the hound? Yeah, now it's very tempting to spoil the first episode. Um, in fact, I might have already spoiled it by, well, okay, I'll, I'll do a little bit of spoiling for those that still want to watch it. Um, but Rory McCann is the person slash supernatural being that's behind the abduction of these babies. And it's nice to see him turn up and he plays it to the roof, which is kind of good. I, I kind of get the sense he looked at the script, thought, well, this isn't much good, but hey, I'm just going to go mental with it. However, He's the supernatural element of the show. Finding him is supposed to be the thing that unlocks the rest of the story as to why he's abducting these babies. And I'd say the show devotes a good 15 minutes to that. And I thought to myself, well, if the show doesn't care about the supernatural element, why the fuck should I? You know what I mean? It's far <laughs> yeah. too concerned with trying to write relatable teens. And I find that really sort of sickly and horrible in a way that doesn't work for me. I'm not entirely sure that the teen drama genre, if you like, needs to be done anymore. To my knowledge, teens are watching the same things that everyone else is watching. I don't think teens are looking for relatable stories. I, mean, I could be entirely wrong about this, but you know what it made me yearn for? It made me yearn for um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a teen drama with a supernatural element thing, but it was aware of the fact that it was quite silly. There was a meta element to it where the characters were sort of playing with the idea that this setup is ridiculous, whereas the Irregulars just plays it plain straight. And as a result, comes off as hokey from every single angle. It made me yearn for that kind of teen drama. There's nothing wrong with teen drama as a genre, although I question the validity of it in the modern age when everybody can watch everything. But it's been done better before. I didn't find anything in this to hang on to. In fact, you know what? It reminded me of a term that my mum is famous for using. And again, for our international audience, you might not have heard this before, but in the UK, it's fairly common. And the term is tosh. It, <laughs> as in, it, it's nonsense. It's it's flippant. It's don't pay any attention load to it. Load of bollocks. It's, yeah, load of bollocks. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tosh. It, the, the supernatural element is just tosh every time. You just sort of roll your eyes at it. And, you know, I, as I said at the start of this review, it's split critics 50-50 between people saying pretty much exactly what I'm saying and people that really seem to identify with it and think it's a good piece of work. Personally, I think it's tosh. <laughs> and that's the end of my review of the When you were saying about it's like they're trying to get down with the kids, it sounds like, you know, this is the kind of thing that should have been made by Larry Clark. Remember that movie Kids from 1995? Right. Only, yeah. only then you'd have to put it on HBO when nobody ever would And if be you're going to do those it. teen stories as well, I think you have to, it does try and go dark and deep at points, but it never quite gets there. And whether that's, I think it's a failure of the writing, and I'm sorry to say it, but I think it's a failure of the performances as well. They're cardboard cutout characters that are what adults perceive teenagers to be. 
And I, I think as a writer, that is something that you should um, avoid at all costs. You know, it comes across as people that have, they've spoken to teenagers, but teenagers have spoken to them as adults. So they've got a, a skewed vision of what teenagers talk to each other like. Do you know what I mean? It just, it doesn't work for me. It really doesn't work for me. And um, yeah, I try and watch everything for this podcast. I got a few episodes in and it's just such tosh that I I couldn't continue with it. Um, so, but it, it's been top of the Netflix charts for a while. I don't know whether that's because there's not a lot of stuff going on at the moment and people are just looking for something new to watch or whether people out there are really liking it and they've turned off from this podcast because I don't. But there you go. That's that's my honest take on it. We'll anyway. never know. We will never know. Yeah. <laughs> if our audience figures are down next week, we've, we've done bad. <laughs> <laughs> but honest, you know, honest. Uh, second thing I want to talk about this week, um, I've got it written down in my notes as Louis Theroux does Tigers. I'm just going to find the correct title of it because in my head, that's what it's called. Um, oh yeah, the shoot, sorry. This is Louis Theroux shooting Joe Exotic. So as we mentioned before, um, with Tiger King, Louis Theroux actually interviewed Joe Exotic many, many moons ago for a program he did on the Keepers of Exotic Animals. In fact, meeting Joe Exotic was Louis Theroux's jumping off point for the theme of that episode of his documentary series at the time. Because from that point forwards, he thought it'd be interesting to investigate more and more of these exotic animal owners. And it was sort of Joe Exotic that started that whole thing off. Uh, Of course, ever since then, there's been Tiger King, which is an international phenomenon, one of the most watched shows on Netflix and in the world at that point. Um, And uh, yeah, we don't need to go into Tiger King. Everyone knows what Tiger King is thing with Louis Theroux is he kind of missed the boat on it. And not for the first time, actually. Um, we spoke in a news article a little while back about um, he did a very similar follow-up documentary to his earlier interview with Jimmy Savile, where he sort of, it was almost a weird bit of self-flagellation, where he's going, why didn't I get closer to it? I, I feel like I failed as a documentary maker. He's sort of doing the same thing with this. In the, you know, Netflix came along and ate his lunch, for want of a better term. And so now he's going back. Unfortunately for him, there because Tiger King is such a gigantic show and because the Netflix lawyers are involved, he actually wasn't allowed to interview any of the people that appeared on Tiger King, other than the Baskins. He's got um, Carol Baskin. He's got Carol Baskin and her husband. Yeah, um, and he's also got uh, somebody who wasn't mentioned in the original uh, Tiger King documentary, um, Yuri, Joe's brother. And at one point, he actually goes, the, the Baskins now own the wildlife park that Joe Exotic used to have. And they take him around for a tour. And at one point, Louis Threw goes into Joe Exotic's old house, which is now a complete wreck. It's, you know, it's like a bomb site in there. It's been torn to pieces. And he sort of looks around on the floor for bits and pieces that people might have missed. And I thought, if that isn't a beautiful analogy for what's happening here. Louis Theroux is literally picking through the rubble of this story that he sort of had the jump on. And then uh, uh, would it be unfair to say he, he he didn't follow it through? I don't know. I mean, there, there is that self-flagellation element to this of Louis Theroux going, yeah, maybe I could have gone deeper. Maybe we should have made more programs about it. One, one thing I did find interesting about this documentary is that he raises the subject that, I mean, Louis Theroux is a proper documentary maker. He does it in a very dry BBC style that isn't to everyone's taste, but it's very objective and the, the most, uh, to the limit of what a documentary can be. Yeah, you know, we've spoken before about documentaries always going to reflect the opinions of the people that make them. It's sort of a, but he, Louis Theroux tries to be as objective as possible. One of the things he does bring up, and it made me question my review of Tiger King, actually, it did make me think, was about the, um, the sensationalism aspect of it. Because Tiger King was marketed and 
cut its teeth, if you like, on the sort of it's the entertainment genre. It was never really trying to be a serious documentary. It was trying to show this madcap scenario that was so bizarre that you couldn't believe it was true. And so that whole thing about um, Carol Baskin murdering her husband and things like that, obviously the Baskins have a massive problem with this idea. And Louis Theroux questions that as well and goes, well, is that, did their documentary go too far into the sensationalism and get away from the truth? Was it right for that documentary to do that? And it did make me question it myself, which I thought was interesting. So what you've essentially got here is Louis Theroux picking through the pieces of the story that's left and going through footage that wasn't shown in his original documentary in an attempt to sort of fill in the gaps from his side of the story. It's an interesting piece of work. Um, I've seen a lot of these sort of Tiger King cash-ins recently. Ross Kemp's doing a thing on ITV at the moment about um, exotic animal keepers in the UK, which is very sort of documentary light. It's more like sort of light entertainment than anything else. Although I must say for the record, I do actually like Ross Kemp. And I think Ross Kemp has made some really good documentaries. Ross but... Kemp on gangs. Yeah, I, I genuinely liked Ross Kemp on gangs. I thought it was very good. Out about gangs. I think he's very brave and I think he's made some important work. I wouldn't say what he's doing with exotic animals in the UK. Is, I don't think it's even attempting to be that. It's attempting to be more of a flippant look at the, the UK keepers of exotic yeah. pets. Louis Theroux's take is actually, it's almost sad in a way. Uh, it's Louis through musing over a lost opportunity. And it's also taking a drier account of what was otherwise a very sensational story. And so as a result, I found it quite interesting. I think it's worth watching as a companion piece. And dare I say it, I think it's worth looking at from, I'm, I'm going to use the term, I'm not entirely comfortable with it, but perhaps a, a, a proper documentary maker. You know, somebody that really works very hard not to sensationalize his stories and tries to get a, a more accurate picture rather than something that's going for entertainment value. It's interesting to see that person's take on Tiger King as a documentary and on the subject itself. So it's it's thought-provoking stuff, and I think it's worth doing. I really do. When you said, like, with regards to Savile, when through said, oh, I should have gotten deeper, did, is he like, did, well, does he think that he could have rumbled Savile? Because that sounds to me to be a bit deluded. Well, I, I think from what I saw, I remember watching that documentary where he was talking about it. And I think his point was that he knew that was there and he pushed fairly hard towards Jimmy Savile in order to try and get him to reveal something about it, to try and get further into that. Of course, Savile was a master of deflection and that's how he was able to prosper in his nefarious and terrible deeds. But I think he felt a little bit of guilt in the sense that perhaps if he pushed further uh, he would have got something that would have actually been able to pin him down a bit. And several, to the best of our knowledge, continued to uh, do his horrific acts all the way up to his death. So perhaps if he... Uh, yeah, I totally get where that guilt's coming from. I think it's I think it's him being unfair on himself. I think actually this Tiger documentary is him being a little unfair on himself. But I think that's kind of one of the things that makes him a, a good filmmaker and a good person, is that he's trying his damnedest to do his best. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't do your best. And yeah, whether that's through circumstance or whatever, but there's a temptation to go, well, maybe I should have done something because it would have lessened suffering or whatever. I don't think personally that's the responsibility of a filmmaker, but I get why when you're that sort of filmmaker, you would feel that burden upon your shoulders. So it's interesting to see him mentally explore that as well. It is, but you know the kind of person who doesn't get fooled by psychopaths. They don't exist. Right, sure. Yeah. So it's, I think, the, I don't know, I just, uh, humanistic, I suppose, but it also sounds a little bit, I don't know, 
it sounds a little bit uh, bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's him being too hard on himself. But that's an interesting thought process to watch. And it does gain you a bit more insight. And it, yeah, it made me reconsider my take on Tiger King. So if to me, if something does that to me, that suggests that it's a, a you know, thought-provoking and a recommendable piece of work for the podcast anyway. Very, yeah, well, I like Theroux, so why not? Yeah, I, I really like Theroux as well. I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. So yeah, worth a watch, I would say. Okay, then. Well, it's come that time in the show where we finish off with some trivia. Uh, you threw me a softball this week, Liam, because we have never done Muhammad Ali trivia on the podcast. And of course, it's absolutely ripe for uh, for interesting stuff. Oh, he was a very interesting man. Yeah, he was very interesting. Let's crack on with this one. Uh, Cassius Clay is, of course, his original name. Uh, he was named for a white abolitionist. Uh, Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. and named after his father who had in turn been named for a white abolitionist. The original Cassius Clay was a wealthy 19th century planter and politician who not only published an anti-slavery newspaper, but also emancipated every slave he inherited from his father. Cassius Clay also served as a minister to Russia under President Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Interesting bit of family tree. I didn't know about um, Cassius Clay, the abolitionist. No, I can't say I was aware of him, actually. Mm, so there's a whole sort of racial um, association the, the whole way through, you know, before he was born, that genesis was there, you know, the anti-slavery and uh, civil rights and equality between all men, women, etc. Well, because before he called himself Muhammad Ali, he was entertaining the moniker Cassius X because within, like, same with right, yeah. Malcolm X changed his name from Malcolm Little because, you know, Little was the, you know, the slave owner's surname. But in this... The case of Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali, it doesn't really sound like Clay was the slave owners. So, well, maybe once upon a time, but it sounds like it's so it's it's more synonymous with the liberationists and anti-slave activists. Yeah, because of this guy, he essentially emancipated the slaves that he inherited, and he published a newspaper on the uh, the terrible nature of slavery. So, uh, what a good guy that was! It was a brave thing to do back in those days, right? Pretty life risky. Mm, you know? Good for him. Ali was classified in the army as fit for service only in times of national emergency because he failed the army's IQ test, scoring only a 78. He was famously quoted as saying, I said I was the greatest, not the smartest. (laughs) However, it's likely that Muhammad Ali's dyslexia resulted in a deflated IQ score that doesn't necessarily reflect his intelligence. IQs are, IQ tests are a lot of bollocks anyway. We did this on the podcast. Yes. Anyway, anyway, the, the, just about every intelligence researcher completely discounts the validity of the IQ test. It, it only measures a certain type of intelligence. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. At the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome, Ali won the gold medal for boxing in the light heavyweight division. But as he wrote in his 1975 autobiography, The Greatest, My Own Story, he supposedly threw his medal into the Ohio River in frustration over the racism he still experienced in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Some historians dispute the story and suggest that Ali just lost the medal. Either way, he was given a replacement when he lit the Olympic cauldron at the opening ceremonies of the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Wow. The epic showdown between Joe Frazier and Ali was the first time in history where an unbeaten former heavyweight champion faced off against the unbeaten current champion. Ali was stripped of his title when he refused to fight in the Vietnam War, so he had not lost his crown in the ring. Ali dubbed himself the People's Champion. He lost that fight, but fought Frazier twice more and finished with a lifetime 2-1 record against him. In 1978, DC Comics published Superman vs. Muhammad Ali, (laughs) 
which I've got to read. I mean, there has to be a digital I didn't copy even of that know somewhere. That. Yeah. <laughs> An oversized comic in which Muhammad Ali defeats Superman and saves the world. Yeah, sounds about right. However, in real life, this is really interesting, Ali did save a man from suicide. In 1981, a man threatened to jump from the ninth story of a building in LA's Miracle Mile neighborhood. Ali's friend, Howard Bingham, witnessed the unfolding drama and called the boxer who lived nearby. Ali rushed into the building and successfully talked the man down from the ledge. Damn. That's a hell of a powerful thing to do, isn't it? I think if you talk someone down from suicide, that is... Such an amazing, uh, yeah, it's such a difficult thing to do as well, but such a, an achievement in your life to be able to, to save someone like that, to be able to give them hope. I totally see why you know, Muhammad Ali famously has such an incredibly positive attitude. I can totally see how that you know, um, contagious enthusiasm he had would lend himself to be. Well, that's the thing. I th- I th- you still get silly people who, I, I, I actually think that the, the, uh, the jury is objectively, objectively uh, settled that Ali was not arrogant. It, that I mean, he 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 affected a certain arrogance for for terms of entertainment. But mm. he himself, he was very very confident mm. and capable. But he was and also, a very intelligent man as and well. And a very intelligent, despite man. his IQ talk and score, and, and a humanist mm. and an empath. You know, he wasn't the arrogance. You know, the the repartee that he had with Parkinson, for example. It was all. It was like circus banter. It was for fun. Yeah. You know, and that, and and I, and I think the way Ali managed to execute that is just perfect. I actually got a little bit on that coming up. I've got one thing before it though. Ali was invited to North Korea to participate in the International Sports and Cultural Festival for Peace in Pyongyang. When one of the North Koreans boasted how they could take out the United States or Japan anytime they wanted, Ali, despite his Parkinson's, said as clear as a bell, "No wonder we hate these motherfuckers." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it just made me laugh. Yeah. And yeah, a little bit on Ali's uh, famous, well, shit-talking, really. <laughs> Ali was once challenged to a boxing match by basketball superstar Wilt Chamberlain. During the pre-fight conference, a reporter asked Ali the question that was on everyone's mind. How could Ali possibly counter Chamberlain's formidable reach, power, and size? Ali leaned into the mic and whispered, Timber, while maintaining unflinching eye contact with Chamberlain. Every time Chamberlain tried to speak during the conference, Ali whispered, Timber, again. (laughs) Whenever a reporter asked Ali a question, his reply was the same. Eventually, a visibly flustered Chamberlain left the conference to consult his lawyers. A few minutes later, one of Chamberlain's lawyers came back and sheepishly announced that the fight was off. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Timber. Oh, yeah. That's the thing, right? What a it's fucking, about psyching out your opponent, isn't but it? But yeah. you know what a what a class A and classy troll. Yeah, yeah just <laughs> absolutely. Sure. You know, that's the way you do it properly. Yeah, he didn't really insult him. He just said, you know, no, you're, yeah. you're going over. Just you're going over with your head in a really <laughs> funny, amusing yeah. way. Yeah. Great wit. Well, anyway, that's the end of my uh, Muhammad Ali trivia this week. That was great. Man. Hope you learned some uh, interesting things you didn't know. Yeah, previously. definitely. Uh, there's tons of that as well. I just had to, for time purposes, I had to cherry pick some of the more interesting ones. But uh, if any of that interests you, please do go and look it up because he just says, yeah, the man is a, a trivia fountain, essentially. Oh, incredible life. But uh, yes, we must get on to our premium podcast this week. Uh, I believe you have a film to review, Lim. Yes, I do indeed. I'm going to be doing, uh, I wanted to do an extra take on Sicario, actually. Because even though Denny News filmography is deservedly beloved, I usually see a lot of his other movies doing the rounds far more than I do Sicario. And I just think it's a really, really phenomenal picture. Super. So, yeah, need, look need, forward need, to that. Most people probably know it, but I want to talk about it anyway. Yeah, so. brilliant. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, I'm going to review brand new release actually, starring Bruce Willis, uh, Cosmic Sin. Oh, I've heard about this. Yes, I have a, uh, <laughs> I have a, what I'm hoping is going to be a, uh, a well, an intriguing review of that anyway. But because it's starring Bruce Willis, we thought in lieu of our uh, Al Pacino special last week, again, Bruce Willis is someone we haven't gone into depth on in the podcast. So after my review, we are going to be discussing uh, the career highlights, I guess, of Bruce Willis. Big fan of the man as an actor. As an individual, not so much. I've got some trivia <laughs> at the end as well that might shed some light on some of that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah if, if that sounds interesting to you, please do check out cinementalist.com. Link on the webpage to our Patreon page so you can access all of our premium content. Uh, there's also a link on cinementalist.com to the Wacko Jacko blog where you can find Liam's written musings. Please do go and check them out. Um, you can follow us uh, on Twitter. I always said at Twitter. On Twitter, at Cinementalcast. And you can follow Liam at... Oh, I'm Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Yeah, I uh, hope you guys follow us on social media stuffs. And I hope you guys check out the premium stuff as well. If not, however, of course, we'll be back next week for another free podcast with the latest news and reviews. Anything to add, Liam? Thank you very much for listening, people. As always, we hope you're having a lovely evening or morning or whenever the fuck time of day you're listening to this out there. So, yeah, stay safe and keep watching good stuff. Excellent. Okay, guys. Well, I hope to see you in the premium. If not, next week. Take it easy. <laughs>